Hey Sis, it's a weekly shakedown of the binary walls around us. Breaking it out and building a bridge. Checking our biases with empathy and humility and questioning the status quo. It's about building allyship that is intentional and confident. Then, well, what are we going to do with, with housing or jobs? Are we going to, are we, are we like, how, how segregated is society supposed to be? And if, if in what we're seeing from these anti-trans advocates with the challenges that they are, are trying to mount to these human rights laws is, is in effect an argument for intense segregation throughout all aspects, like all areas of society. Today, we are joined by Charlotte Dawood. Charlotte uses she, her pronouns as a commentator on Canadian constitutional law to us LGBTQ plus rights and religion. She currently holds a Master of Arts in Religion with a concentration in theology from Yale University and a certificate in Anglican Studies from Berkeley Divinity School at Yale and is currently pursuing her JD through the University of Calgary. Welcome to Hastings, Charlotte. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the show. And um, for those of you um, who are wondering a little bit more about Charlotte Delwood, we we reached out to Charlotte because we came across an article that she wrote. Um, it was posted as an opinion piece on CBC entitled as misinformation campaigns against transgender rights intensifies Ottawa must act. And we wanted to know more about that. We wanted to talk a little bit more about these misinformation campaigns, how they are affecting and hurting the trans community, and what should Ottawa be doing. So why don't we start first, uh, Charlotte, with so how was your article received by the public? Um, Were there any comments that you received that sort of stood out the most? was it predominantly, did you get a, a lot of positive feedback or was it more of those misinformation mongers that, uh, that attacked, that attacked the commentary? So the response, um, that I received was, to the article was predominantly negative, um, which was about what I would have anticipated. One of the, um, unfortunate realities of writing pieces, uh, in the CBC or any, uh, media platform that has a a large reach is that a lot of the people who take the time to actually let you know specifically um what they thought of what you've uh of what you've said um are not saying very nice things about about what you've written um which isn't to say that the that is an accurate uh gauge of how readers generally uh received the piece um just to say that that is uh kind of the nature of who who takes the time to let you know what they themselves they themselves think. Um, particularly, um, I received a particularly strong response to the piece from the anti-trans groups that I name as examples in it. Um, so COSBAR, uh, the Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights uh, Organization, and We the Females, um, both lodged formal complaints with the CBC Ombudsman um, over the piece um, and took to Twitter to air uh, many of their grievances. Um, and then earlier this week, there was a, well, it's a hit piece, really, um, that was published uh, against me and the piece in um, this Catholic, let's see if I can get this right, traditional Catholic alt-right um, well, they call themselves a news site, but that's probably generous, like conspiracy uh, site, um, which uh, 
was also, uh, again, just an example of the, the kind of people who take the time to uh, mention you specifically and make sure you know exactly uh, what they think, um, not being necessarily like, the friendliest folks. Um, so those have been kind of the responses that I ha- that have been brought to my attention, um, which I don't think are representative of how um, an average reader would would have received the piece. No, I think I think that that doesn't surprise me. Probably doesn't surprise Isaac either. And I think it's good for people to know when it comes to you know trans articles around transgender you've got to really look to the source and not the comments and that sort of around that whole misinformation disguised as fact that is out there that is really kind of harming human rights um and protected rights for trans people in our communities to kind of cindy's point there um i think it's kind of kind of like most reviews for like restaurants you know the only people that give reviews are going to be negative reviews and the same thing with articles the only comments you're going to see are going to be people with negative comments which is the unfortunate aspect of a lot of advocacy work because people you know who either are allies or part of the community they very rarely comment on stuff like that they usually share it and they support it within their own circles but they're not open about supporting it, which is really hard for someone like yourself, who is very well-spoken and does a lot of commentary work. You don't get to see kind of the positive, (laughs) you know, actions afterwards of those types of articles. You just see the negative and all the fear-mongering and people taking it and spinning it in their own direction and using that as a different narrative, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is, I think, why one of the things I really love is uh, when people actually reach out to to me directly to let me know what they think. Um, and one of the uh, tricks that I, I really picked up uh, in grad school, actually, to deal with this sort of um, feedback bias um, towards, you know, hearing mostly negative uh, feedback to what you write and put out there, is uh, to create a special folder um, in your email inbox. Uh, a friend of mine calls it a good vibes folder where you basically save nice things that people have said. So when you're, you know, when you've written something that is getting most negative feedback, you can go and read, read these, uh, you know, rare, but uh, really often quite touching um, letters and emails that, uh, you know, people send you saying nice things. Uh, it can be very affirming. I yeah. love that. That's I love that. I'm going to yeah. do that. I'm going to make one later this morning. Um, so for those like who maybe did not have the opportunity to read the article, and we will post a link on our blog to the article so you can check it out. Um, but maybe, Charlotte, can you explain about the gray area in our current legislation um, and what role does the Supreme Court currently have? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I basically make three points in the article. Um, the first point, and, and something that I really want uh, listeners to take away, is that under you know the current law, trans people have very strong and very established and very well-defined rights and protections. Um, they have rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So uh, the Section 15 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, is the equality provision. It says everyone is equal under and before the law and prohibits discrimination from governments um, on the basis of sex. And that includes trans people. Um, courts have been very clear on this. There's not a lot of uh, ambiguity there. Uh, trans people also have very strong protections under provincial and federal uh, human rights legislation. Um, 
which uh, tend to actually specify gender and gender identity as um, areas that are deserving special protection. So that's the first takeaway, is that these these rights and protections are, are very strong. They're very established. Um, courts have been consistent in interpreting them as protecting trans people. So the, the, that leads to the second point, which is this misinformation campaign that I touch upon. So you ask about the, the gray area in um, Canadian law. The reality is there isn't one, um, but it, there, there are these anti-trans advocacy groups that are trying to create it. Um, so some of, I named some of the groups in the article, but one of the um, key arguments that we are seeing from anti-trans advocates right now is this idea that uh, Canadian law, and specifically the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, only um, uh, or protects cis women's rights to sex-segregated spaces, so spaces where they can be free of trans people, because in the Charter only refers to, it only guarantees equality on the basis of sex. And so the idea being that that doesn't include gender, sex and gender are distinct, and so cis women have this sex-based right, as uh, people assigned female at birth, um, to sex segregation, to their own, to female-only bathrooms, to okay. female-only women's shelters, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. So this idea that then legislation that, uh, like human rights legislation that protects gender identity is actually unconstitutional because it, it violates this sex-based right. So therefore you could, you could challenge, for instance, the Alberta Human Rights Act, um, which does protect against discrimination on the basis of gender and gender identity on the basis of actually violates cis women's right to non-discrimination on the basis of sex. So that's this uh, attempt to uh, create a gray area. A lot of the advocacy has kind of uh, constellated around um, prisons and uh, the Correctional Service of Canada's policy of um, taking uh, people's gender identities into account when deciding where to house them. So I mentioned this idea of sex segregated spaces. Um, so a lot, we are seeing um, a number of protests uh, at prisons across the country, small but uh, recurrent, which are arguing, claiming that cis women inmates' right to sex segregated prison spaces is being violated by having trans women housed in women's prisons. Um, and so that, that speaks to this, what I think like in, in, in these prison protests, I think we see very clearly what these anti-trans advocates mean by sex segregation, quite literally different spaces where you have, um, walled off, uh, from one another, where you have cis women can congregate without, uh, without men, without trans women. And they claim this is basically a, a constitutional right. Okay, so, and it's basically then on the grounds that they're not accepting that trans women are women. Um, I can think to one example recently, too, where my daughter um, lifeguards at a swimming pool, and there were a group of cis women um, that were, you know, particular, like it was a special sort of a, a women's only swim time. And there was several women there that got very upset that there was a trans woman there swimming. And, and we had a lot of dialogue around that. Um, 
on how they were able to support the trans woman who had every right to be there. But I guess that's what you're speaking to as well, that and domestic violence shelters, um, homeless shelters for the evening, um, trying to break it down so that trans women maybe have nowhere to go. Yeah, it's it's everything. I mean, those are some specific examples. Um, washrooms, change rooms, prisons. These are kind of some specific spaces where a lot of this um, anti-trans sentiment and anti-trans advocacy kind of focuses. Um, but one of the things to keep in mind is that the human rights legislation that is being challenged here protects uh, people from discrimination in all facets of life. So, for example, like one of the uh, the kind of two key areas where human rights legislation protects people is in you know, housing, so landlord-tenant relationships, and in employment, hiring, um, continue, you know, employment practices, uh, and so on. So, if if these legis- if this legislation, these protections are indeed unconstitutional then the kind of extension of that is that, well, then trans people do not, in fact, have a right to be free from discrimination when they go to rent a, rent a home, when they go to apply for a job, that, in fact, um, it is people's constitutional right to discriminate against um, against trans people in order to preserve sex segregation. Um, and that's uh, and that's one of the, the extensions, which, you know, it's... Um, I think when we when we talk about bathrooms, change rooms, prisons, etc., um, it's kind of easy to think that well, we could just create more spaces. You know, we can just have um, non-gendered washrooms or change rooms, for instance, so you can still have sex segregation where all the trans people go to the um, the unisex bathrooms, and then we have women's bathrooms that are for cis women and men's bathrooms for cis men, and um, I mean, there's lots of problems with that view. Building for the washrooms. Exactly, but then you, but then you think, okay, well, even if we were to accept that that that's okay, and that's the you know kind of upshot of this sex segregation um, proposal, then well, what are we going to do with with housing or jobs? Are we going to are we are we like how how segregated is society supposed to be? And if if in what we're seeing from these anti-trans advocates with the challenges that they are are trying to mount to these human rights laws is is in effect an argument for intense segregation throughout all aspects like all areas of society i have a million thoughts going through my head and i'm just wondering and you might know this you might not know charlotte but has there actually ever been a case in canada where um, a trans woman has has like murdered or attacked or sexually assaulted somebody in a bathroom or um you know like that's the thing like it's the the whole fixation on that segregation um you know, that I actually don't think, and I, you know, I've tried to look this up before, but there's very, like, there's where a trans person has just been using a space that actually there has been an incident of violence or harassment or something at the cis person. It's usually directed back at the trans person because of this misinformation. Yeah, I, I don't know, and I'm not, I don't have a comprehensive, um, knowledge of all of the all of the criminal charges that uh may or may not have been uh laid against against people in canada um i i um from my own kind of reading of some of this anti-trans anti-trans publications is often the examples of harassment and attacks are of cis men 
um, committing the violence, which we know is uh, statistically what tends um, what tends to happen. Um, there, there are many there are many problems with these these narratives of you know the violent the violent trans woman, um, which are of course an, an extension of the kind of arguments against gay like cis gays and lesbians that we um, saw in you know seventies eighties uh, and so on. Um, but for instance, you'll see this this uh, this narrative or this this claim um, at some of these like for instance the prison protests you know um, trans uh, you know what is it it'll, it'll go some, something to the effect of transgender um, sex offenders are being housed in this women's prison and and you know I hate I hate to tell you but like but so are are cis women sex offenders um, because that is where we house women offenders um, so it it is. Um, it's, it's both the case that I, I, I think that these, these claims are, are certain of the violent, violent trans women are, are certainly overblown. They're, you know, they're a transphobic talking point. Um, and it's the case that we should also have, um, the integration of, uh, trans women with cis women in prisons, um, in change rooms, in employment, even if there are individual bad actors, um, that that in and of itself is not a reason to um, kind of forcibly segregate these these societies, because of course the reality is that there are going to be individuals who uh, do bad things for for any number of reasons, and you know we can talk about you know the social reasons that lead to people committing crimes, but um, the point being that 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 point is a wrong and and b also not a reason. Um, to segregate society. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to your point exactly is that we're, we're at a point where we're trying to socially break down barriers and break down walls, but there's so many groups that are hyper fixated on terminology and labels. And while they might be important in on one hand, I know I can name so many different articles that I've um, just scrolling through. I've seen that, you know, says like trans woman or trans man or non-binary person automatically in the article title. And I'm like, I know right off the bat, there's a bias there because there's no reason why you need to hyper-specify what this person's gender identity is or what their sexuality is or what their race is or ethnicity. There's no reason to do that. So, you know, there's a lot of articles out there who are already feeding that kind of fear mongering and that hate that people have, because you can just search, you can go into Google and search, you know, angry trans woman, and you'll find thousands of articles and it's it's awful um so to segue kind of from from that point there in your opinion and your expertise who and i guess more what is kind of motivating or feeding these groups to target um commentators or trans people in in your opinion um i mean i i think that there are you know a couple of reasons um as always it's a complex issue um, one of the uh, very specific reasons that they are growing is, frankly, that uh, anti-trans activism is being exported to Canada from the United Kingdom, um, and increasingly it's being exported from the United States. Um, and related to that, we have the, the kind of dark side of the Internet, um, which is the ability, uh, you know, the the ability that the internet gives people to organize um, across national boundaries, um, certainly across provincial boundaries, um, so that people can find other people who think 
the way they do and can feed into their view of the world. Um, and this is this is helping these anti-trans narratives to come over from from particularly the United Kingdom. So for you know, for instance, so the groups that I watch um, and a couple of them I mentioned in the article again, um, if you go on their Twitter feeds, you'll see a lot of British media um, being reposted, being shared, and at the present state um, of the United Kingdom, British media is is horribly and you know dominantly anti-trans. So if we're seeing those kind, you know, so that's where they're getting a lot of these these views confirmed. Um, and then related to that, and this is something that that particularly interests me um, as someone in, uh, in law, is that that Canadian law is in some ways uniquely complicated, particularly Canadian constitutional law. So um, in the United States, you have so you have American Constitution and you know famously, for example, you right to bear arms and you just open the Constitution and you look at it and you say right to bear arms, great, I'm gonna go get a go get a weapon. This is you know, but it's this kind of like self it's almost self-interpreting. It's very plain, it's very readable. Um, the Canadian Constitution is not like that. Um, so you open the charter and you go to the equality provision. Okay, everyone is equal under and before the law, and um, protected from discrimination, particularly on the basis of, among other things, sex. And you say, well, I know what sex is, so I know what the charter applies to. But that's not how you read the charter from a from a legal perspective. That's not actually how when we're doing law or when when courts are deciding rights or deciding, you know, whether legislation is constitutional or not, that's not how they're going to do it. And it's not self-interpreting. You need, you need to understand the case precedent. You need to understand some of these, these unwritten principles of how courts read, um, read the constitution. For example, in Canadian law, we have some uh, constitutional law, we have something called analogous grounds, which basically means that, so the charter lists all of these protected uh, grounds, so you can't be discriminated on 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 certain areas. And the uh, the courts say, well, it, if something isn't written specifically in there, that's okay. If we can um, find something else that's analogous to one of the written grounds, we'll say that's protected too. Um, marital status is kind of there's like there's some famous cases where the you know the the courts have read things into the charter. So what this means is that even if People are, you know, trans people are not protected against discrimination uh, just on the sex grounds, which the courts have consistently said they are. Um, the courts could say, well, but gender is analogous to sex in a legal sense. So we're just going to read it in. Like, that's not a problem. We, we do this all the time. Um, Canadian Constitution includes unwritten elements. So that's OK. You need to know this. But for the for the average lay person who doesn't have this legal training, that's not going to be clear at all. They're not going to know that at all. Um, and so groups, these anti-trans groups, what, what they're able to do is they're able to say, okay, you know, you are concerned, you know, person in the world, Canadian in the world, you're concerned about your rights as a woman, you're concerned about safety, etc. Well, just go read the charter yourself, you'll see that it only protects on the basis of sex, but then go read the human rights legislation, well, you'll see that it says gender, well, those are different terms. Clearly, they're referring to different things. And and by encouraging these people to basically go and do their own research, 
they're able to actually tap into ignorance mm. and capitalize on it so that oh, then they wow. can recruit people to their to their movement and they can say well you you've seen that it, it refers to sex like clearly mm. this is this is uh the way it is and and they take what is a complex issue and they simplify it in order to um you know sell their anti-trans talking points and that's a problem and it's a problem um that i i think as people in law we really need to solve because in order to prevent these groups from continuing to expand continuing to recruit more members one of the key you know one of the key things that needs to happen is that the wider public just needs to be educated about some of the nuances of how the the law the laws that govern their lives actually work well so is it fear though like if we look about like so we know that they're doing it but at the like at the i mean i know it's hard to hypothesize but it seems like a lot of it is really grounded in in fear it's kind of i mean it's sad it's sad it's it's i I just can't figure out the why you know and even jk rowling like when you mentioned the uk um, you know, huge with, you know, Harry Potter and, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, she's totally in that sort of turf zone of not accepting trans women as being women. And, um, you think, you know, educated, knowledgeable people would be a, a little bit more open to understanding the complexities of biology. Yeah. I think on the one hand, I want to acknowledge that I think people's reasons for embracing any ideological position are often deeply personal, so it's hard to generalize. On the other hand, I think that um, if we were to speak about some generalities that uh, account for a lot of people, um, a lot of people's adherence to anti-trans positions and then their involvement in anti-trans advocacy, um, I do think a lot of it uh, stems from fear. And I think related is that I think a lot of it stems from trauma. Um, So the unfortunate reality in our world today um is that there is an incredible amount of um male or violence that men commit against women and it's incredibly normalized um and this is indeed you know the world that that people are inhabiting and so if we if we're talking about what is the you know attraction of anti-trans advocacy for cis women um I think I think a, a big part of it is rooted in this in this quite justifiable um, fear and anger fear uh, of and anger at men, and so this is why we have this this uh, I think a lot of the fear con- you know constellates around trans women and the dangers that they supposedly pose to um, cis women in you know these these in shelters and prisons in, you know, change rooms, et cetera, is because it's, it's this, it's this uh, fear of, of what men will do to women in those spaces, which is often, um, or too often, you know, commit violence. Um, and so if you have, you have this fear and you really want to, you want to protect yourself, you want to protect your community, um, and you want, uh, against, the intrusion of, uh, you know, violent men into your, into your spaces. Well, to do what, what anti-trans activists often do, which is to say, well, then every, you know, every person born with a penis is unwelcome here because every person born that way is an inherent, an inherent threat. Um, and so I, in, in a lot of ways, I have, um, I have a great deal of sympathy for people who, who hold this position. Um, 
because I think I think a lot of it's rooted in fear and the trauma that many women, um, you know, have have experienced um, at the hands at the hands of men. Um, that doesn't justify it, but I think that's where a lot of it. I think that's where a lot of it uh, does come from on a on a very personal level for people. Yeah, no, very, very true, and very well said too. Because I think, I think it's key that we we focus that the root issue is kind of the systematic oppression that so many women across the globe have been put through, and that though there are certain women who have experienced trauma or experienced marginalization or anything of that sort, and they can't kind of get, they can't pivot their their brain away from the aspect of someone to be frank having a penis and that's what they root that the, the patriarchy and the marginalization to is that aspect not the person that has that genitalia you know trans women are women and they can't discern between a trans woman and a man and that's the, the root cause and it's 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 horrible and awful and I think that a lot, like the weaponization, the weaponization of the penis. And it's, you know, it happens in, in as young as, you know, in elementary school, you know, in primary and grade one with young trans youth, you know, other, you know, little girls have come up to um, trans girls and said, you know, you can't use this washroom and they're six years old. And it's like, where, like, what? (laughs) And um, it's that, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it is trickling down. So um, it's it's taught at a really young age too. It is. It yeah. is. So I have one other quick question, and it's definitely a loaded question. Um, so I apologize in advance, um, but this is something that I'm. I, so as a trans person myself, I have been teetering around a lot with, and I'm not too sure how to approach it. Um, so I'm wondering with your uh, expertise, more particularly uh, in the law side of things, kind of how you would tackle this. Um, so this is my question. <laughs> um, so what are your thoughts on political parties, um, and more specifically, uh, the People's Party of Canada, whose political platform was built um, on the idea of freedom of expression in air quotes, because it's their own interpretation of the legislature. Um, and one of their end goals being to destroy Bill C-6 and similar bills that make hate, hate speech illegal. Um, is there any comments you want to add around there? So the, the People's Party of Canada is an unfortunate uh, political development in Canada. Um, it is unfortunately part of a larger trend that we are seeing um, in Western democracies towards these populist um, far-right movements kind of um, emerging um, on the political uh, political stage as viable, um, either political parties uh, like the People's Party or... Um, converting other parties like in the United States, um, converting viable political parties into, um, you know, vehicles for them to, to seize power. Um, it's, it's bad. It's problematic. Um, with respect to the specific, some of the specific proposals that the People's Party of Canada is putting forward, I think they should be opposed. I think that one, I think that one of the things that needs to happen. So what we are seeing right now, is far right organizing around a number of issues, be it um, rolling back, you know, pre- or rolling back or preventing the development of hate speech protections to um, 
rolling back human rights protections for trans people, um, and so on. Like we're, see, we're seeing this on a, on a number of issues, and the organizing is being effect is has been fairly effective. And now that they are increasingly organized, they're mobilizing into into political action. I think that this should be a call to action for. Um, well, I want to say people on the left because that's where I am, but I suppose people on the center too, um, who say returning to the, to trans rights. So for people who are, uh, supporters of trans rights, um, who don't want to see the normalization of anti-trans, uh, speech of anti-trans uh, talking points in Canadian society, I think that it's well past time for us to organize ourselves organize and mobilize um, in order to uh, be able to ensure that our voices are heard on the political stage with at least as much, um, if not hopefully hopefully much more force than um, these far-right groups like the People's Party, People, People Party of Canada's uh, voices uh, is being heard. So, um so yeah, it's it. They're bad policies, um, but they are, I think, a let. They they do are, do provide a lesson, um, even for people like me who are you know quite strongly opposed to them um, of the necessity of action. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I think I think just with the most recent election, they've been definitely at the forefront of a lot of folks' mind, um, especially here in Atlantic Canada. There's a lot of folks in New Brunswick who, whatever reason, voted for them, but I think it's just because they were pushing so much to be anti-mask kind of drawing on those very far, far right um, ideologies, which a lot of folks grabbed on. Um, but I, I don't know personally, because I definitely don't want these people in my circle, but I have friends of friends who, um, you know, they were saying, oh, I love trans people, like I'm an ally, you know, and then their their Facebook is just riddled with like PPC, I call it memorabilia or whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's, it's just funny because so many people, they focus on one issue and they don't look at the entire party involved. And sure. yeah. And, and, you know, looking, looking at it myself, you know, I, I don't know if you can comment on this by any means, Charlotte, so I don't want to put pressure on you, but it, it feels very unconstitutional and it feels very like very illegal that they're able to kind of use that as a platform when these are things that are in our human rights codes these are things that are in our legislature that shouldn't be able to be touched and shouldn't be able to be changed or used as a platform or stepping tool for parties um you know you would have hoped that canada would be beyond that by now especially what we've witnessed in uh, the uk and the us but uh, you know here we are but i think you know knock on wood that they're only kind of at the forefront of things this most recent election because of the mask mandate and that they're very much going to fall behind um, in coming years. Uh, but yeah, it's my little mini commentary. <laughs> I mean, one of the, I think one of the key things take away from this sort of far, uh, the rise of the far right in Canada and elsewhere is that laws are only as strong as, you know, the people who uphold them. Um, so protections for trans rights, you know, are only, are only strong if legislatures keep them intact, mm -hmm. if courts, you know, uphold them as protecting trans people, um, if people are willing to bring complaints about anti-trans discrimination to the attention of, you know, the legal system, um, among others. And 
I, I think it, it's a danger, you know, there, there's this danger, um, particularly for people, I think, of a more liberal persuasion who have a lot of faith in in government um, to become complacent and to say, well, we have these protections. We're, we're good. We're not good. It's we are we are in a um, I think on a dangerous trajectory, but we're not so far along um, that it's not possible to um prevent Canada from going the way of the United Kingdom or the United States on, on any number of, of these, of these issues. Um, but the time to act is right now, the time mm-hmm. to um, ensure that good, clear uh, resources are available to the public to mm-hmm. um, limit their willingness to be recruited into these far right movements to make sure those resources are available now. Um, and to be working in our, our local communities to basically, you know, counter these, these far right talking points as they, as they come up. That's the whole purpose of what we do. It's simply good form for sure. And it, um, you know, it is so important. I would love to see more trans and trans women specifically running in, 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 in our, you know, political um, elections. I would really love to see more voices um, within legislature and within the government. And so for cis people, we want to, we want to let, you know, people, cis people that are listening, like what, what can they do? Um, you know, how can they help? And then I'd also like to throw out, you know, for trans people, if we could speak to, so a, a trans person in the workplace, um, somebody is constantly misgendering them. Now you go through your HR and your policies, but if you find that they're, you're not being supported or even a person in power is kind of rolling their eyes and not taking it seriously, is your only recourse to take out a long drawn out human rights complaint? Or could you actually go to the police and say, you know, like, are there protections there like, like right away that, that they could, you know, that they could, that they would have basically. Yeah. Okay. So um, there are a couple questions there. So I'll start with the kind of what cis people should do. And I think it's, it's fairly uh, simple for me. Um, is that what I, what needs to happen in Canada now is that, uh, you know, it's, it's critical because we're at this relatively early stage of, you know, anti-trans organizing and activism here. It's critical to blunt the ability of these anti-trans groups to recruit more members. And I think that one of the key ways to, uh, to do that is basically um, education um, to Right now, I think Canada is a fertile field for um, anti-trans recruiting because for all the reasons that I said earlier about how complicated our law is, um, I think it's important for um, cis people to educate themselves, but particularly to, to be listening to trans people who are, are already putting out the resources, um, to to go to these reliable um educate themselves from reliable sources, basically, so that when um, these anti-trans activists encourage them to educate themselves in unreliable ways, um, you know, pe- these cis people can already recognize these anti-trans talking points uh, for what they are, which is misinformation. Um, so I think that's, I think that's key. Um, but it is hard, isn't it? Because like you have that book that was like, say, published by Abigail Schreier and like there was a big uproar here. Like we don't want it in the libraries because it's in the, like a resource section within the libraries. And I think they've been very good about trying to put up like um, information that this is not educational. This is not to be used as an educational resource, but under the freedom of expression, 
they have to carry this book that is totally transphobic and 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 um, very harmful for parents trying to figure out how to support their trans children. Um, yeah, it, it's tough. Like I, I want on the one hand, I want to say educate yourselves. On the other hand, I, I don't because it's exactly that that kind of talking point that leads people to become anti-trans activists because there's a lot of bad ways to educate yourself. Um, so I, I would maybe I would maybe if for as kind of like a quick takeaway for cis people, educate yourselves by listening to trans people because a lot of these resources are out there now. Not every trans person is re- like a reliable talking point. There was that counterpoint maybe to my article that the CDC published like a week and a half later from a trans woman, which was fairly transphobic. So it does happen. But nonetheless, there are some in Canada, some great uh, trans people, trans women specifically, who are, you know, being very open about uh, what needs to happen, um, about what cis people should know. Um, And um, yeah, so I would say, I would say, listen, listen to trans people. I'll just, uh, I'll just jump on that really quickly too. Like listen to trans people, number one, and then maybe go to places like EGAL Canada or, um, like, well, PFLAG Canada has a lot of great volunteers that are, are great to provide information. Um, and then there's, I guess, provincially run, uh, really good, um, to us LGBTQ plus, uh, support groups. So maybe if you're looking for information, check out their websites because they normally have, a lot of really great resources and even the human rights campaign, um, their website. Um, yeah. Before, and, and yeah. <laughs> as another resource, I would add uh, wisdom to act, wisdom to action, which is actually based in Halifax, but is partially run by an Ontario trans woman who's doing wonderful work on trans inclusion specifically. So that's another, um, because part of the problem with L, like looking at just, to SLGBTQ organizations generally is they don't always have the resources um, dealing specifically with trans issues. So um, yeah, this is a wonderful organization um, to get those kinds of specific uh, resources. Thank you. I, I actually didn't know about them. I think for me as a parent, when when my child first transitioned and like that was my, you know, basically my white, my big light bulb moment and, and realizing it was just that as a Canadian and I, I don't know a lot about law. I didn't go to law school and, um, I was just shocked because I thought, well, okay, I, I understand. Yeah. My child is trans and I love them and I'm going to support them. So then I find out, well, we have all these supports that are in, in, in the human rights code and all of that. But then there's that disconnect that they weren't protected in school and that there weren't proper policies and people, you know, so I, I kind of thought, how is it that this has happened that we're not educating and we're not talking and basically letting, you know, trans youth be invisible. And yet we have these protections. And I felt so let down as a Canadian, like I felt angry. I felt angry and let down and, and then also naive that, you know, it's like, kind of, you know, shame, like guilt that it's like, wow, like, how didn't I get myself aware around this? How, like, how did I let myself not know, you know, because I could have made life probably a lot better for my kid when they were, you know, a little bit younger. And I'm grateful that, you know, they're, they have, they're great and they have a wonderful life right now, but there's just, you know, so many children that are still there and existing and having, you know, parents that don't support them because of this misinformation that's out there. And it's just, it's doing a lot of harm to our youth, to our children, to our trans community. And it's really, like we said here, it's really important that, you know, assist people listening, like take an interest, 
I don't want to draw on too much on this, but I think as Canadians, we get too focused on realize like hyper focused on our neighbors. So we're like, oh, the US is doing really bad at this, but we're fine over here. UK is doing really bad at this, but we're okay here. But oh my goodness, like systematic transphobia, systematic racism, like, you know, police brutality, like all that exists here. We're just very, very good at hiding it. Um so that's why we need more people like yourself, Charlotte, who is willing to <laughs> take the brute force, unfortunately, of these anti-trans and extremely hateful campaigns that are trying to skew the narrative. And we need more people like yourself, um, especially cisgender people who, you know, I hate using the term of vested interest in the community, but people who are allies who don't have personal experiences as trans people who are willing to kind of be the forefront and take those take that heat because you know as a trans person it's a lot of work to sit and talk about your own experiences and to talk about you know this everything that you've had to go through to get to where you are today and then also to you know share such an intimate story about yourself or your own experiences and a public platform to have a bunch of cis straight white people come at you and try and deplatform you for just sharing your experiences or your opinions on things so yeah <laughs> yeah, well, we hope that you'll keep writing and we thank yes. you for it and share it with us as we, you know, and it's great because then these conversations are really good because when I read an article like that, I know it's important and I try to get what I can from it. But I sometimes like I think breaking it down like this, having this dialogue and this conversation is so important to really like understand the bigger picture. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, you know, happy to be writing and I'm glad um, to have people like you to be in uh, in conversation with. So thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. Appreciate Any- it a lot. Yeah. yeah. Anytime at all. Well, that's all the time we have today, folks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hey Sis. If you have any questions you want to ask or want to join in on the conversation, email us at connect at simplygoodform.com. Thank you all. And remember, inclusion matters.